0: Hello and welcome to Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. I'm Ian Masters, and today we'll look into a number of stories and issues in the news. We'll begin with a recent Washington Post-ABC News poll that finds 47% of Republicans want Trump to be their nominee in 2024, and if he will be running against Biden, the same poll has Trump beating Biden 48% to 46%. One of the experts who contributed to the Washington Post article was What Will Happen to America If Trump Wins Again? Experts Help Us Game It Out, joins us. Jennifer McCoy is a professor of political science at Georgia State University and a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She recently was a senior core fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Budapest, Hungary, and her areas of expertise include democratic resilience, partisan polarization, crisis prevention and conflict resolution, Democracy Promotion, and Latin American Politics. She is the author most recently of Polarizing Polities, A Global Threat to Democracy. And she has a recent study at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace, What Happens When Democracies Become Perniciously Polarized. And we will discuss the pernicious polarization gripping our politics as we head for electoral autocracy or a possible outright democratic collapse. Then we'll assess last night's heated and lively debate between J.D. Vance and Congressman Tim Ryan for the key U.S. Senate seat in Ohio and speak with Robert Alexander, a professor of political science and the founding director of the Institute for Civics and Public Policy at Ohio Northern University. He has published four books, the most recent of which is Representation and the Electoral College, published by Oxford University Press a frequent op-ed contributor having written articles for USA Today, CNN, Real Clear Politics, and The Hill, among others, we will discuss what Tim Ryan called a contest in which, quote, Ohio needs an ass-kicker, not an ass-kisser. Then finally, we'll examine the pressure Putin is putting on the dictator of Belarus to enter the war against Ukraine, which is a concern President Zelensky expressed by video today to a meeting of the G7, saying, quote, Russia is trying to directly draw Belarus into this war, playing a provocation that we are allegedly preparing an attack on this country. Joining us is David Marples, a distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, where he teaches Russian and East European history and is a research fellow with the Contemporary Ukraine program. He is also Honorary President of the Belarusian Academy of Arts and Sciences in Canada and the author of 17 books, the latest of which include Stalin, His Life and Works, The War in Ukraine's Donbass, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. We will discuss his article at Engelsberg Ideas, Belarus, the State Built by the Second World War. And before we go to our first guest, this program is completely independent without corporate sponsors and advertising relying entirely on your support. So we ask you to take a moment and visit backgroundbriefing.org slash donate or go to our nonprofit media foundation at publictruthmedia.org where you can keep us online and on the air on a growing number of stations for as little as $5 a month. Help sustain us into the future so that we can continue to provide breaking news analysis from the most knowledgeable guests at home and abroad. And we've made it easier for you to donate simply by credit card at backgroundbriefing.org slash donate, where your tax-deductible contributions make this program possible. And joining us now is Jennifer McCoy, a professor of political science at Georgia State University and a non-resident scholar at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace. She recently was a senior core fellow at the Institute of Advanced Studies in Budapest, Hungary, and her areas of expertise include democratic resilience, partisan polarization, crisis prevention and conflict resolution, democracy promotion, and Latin American politics. And she's the author most recently of Polarizing Polities, A Global Threat to Democracy, And she has a recent study at the Carnegie Endowment for International Peace what happens when democracies become perniciously polarized. Welcome to Background Briefing, Jennifer McCoy.
1: Hi, delighted to be here
0: with you. Well, thanks for joining us. And you're quoted in an article in the Washington Post What will happen to America if Trump wins again? Experts helped us game it out. And frankly, what you have to say is frightening. But the country's hopelessly polarized. But the extraordinary instrument of polarization is Donald Trump. And he he won't go away. I mean, he didn't create the polarization, but he certainly inflamed and exacerbated it, has he not?
2: Oh,
1: he certainly has. But I think it's very important to recognize what you said. He didn't create it. He's a consequence of a process that's been developing over three decades. Of how our country has been dividing uh, politically, geographically, uh, socially. And so we have to keep that in mind. And many people did think that when Donald Trump left the presidency, everything would be well. Uh, but it's not, because the pe- people are already de- very, very divided in what they believe, what information sources they, they find credible or not credible. So even if he had disappeared into the night, we would still have a lot of reconciling to do. Now the fact that he has not disappeared into the night just makes it that much harder.
0: But Trump has very powerful backers who have just pulled what you could describe as an October surprise, and I'm talking about how Mohammed bin Salman of Saudi Arabia and his mentor Vladimir Putin have colluded to jack up the price of oil ahead of the November elections. And if the Republicans take the House, they will uh, lay the groundwork for Trump coming back in 2024, which is, of course, what both Putin and MBS want.
1: Yes. um, Yes, that's exactly right. It is a problem. Um, And, you know, October surprises are very common in elections. So in this case... We have international uh, sort of intervention in our election. Now, whether OPEC would have decided anyway to raise oil prices for their own interests, you know, is a, is a different. Regardless of the U.S. election, I think that's another question. They may very well have. It may not be driven completely by the U.S. election. But what we what certainly is clear is it will have an impact, potentially, on the U.S. election. Now, it takes a while for. Oil international prices to translate into the prices of the pump, so it's not clear exactly you know how much it will affect voting, especially because early voting will be beginning very soon in many states. Um, but yes, we this is another case of our interdependent world and how international actors can intervene to sway um, our our elections as we have seen in the past.
0: And Jennifer McCoy, you were recently in Budapest, Hungary, where you were a senior core fellow at the Institute for of Advanced Studies. It seems to me that the writing is on the wall, that the Republicans have made it clear that they're modeling the electoral autocracy strategy of their hero, Hungary's Viktor Orban, and they're busy taking over the electoral machinery of the country at the state and local level. So to my mind, unless Democrats come out In unprecedented numbers on or before November the 8th to vote against these election deniers that the Republicans will capture the Congress and lay the path for Trump's comeback in 2024 in other words if you don't vote to stop them before your vote becomes meaningless in a little over three weeks you'll be watching the beginning of the end of American democracy
1: well that is certainly one scenario and it's one that uh, that was laid out in that Washington Post article Um, It it is critical that people are aware of the stakes of these elections uh, in November 2022. And particularly uh, what we're seeing, what people are very usually very unaware of, a very arcane issue about what are local and state election workers doing and administrators. Uh, We've also got to keep in mind that the Supreme Court is going to decide during this next session another policy that could give state legislatures the right to over to overturn, basically, the electoral vote in their states and to not be constrained by their own state Supreme Courts, which have served as a constraining uh, mechanism uh, in the last election in some cases. So we've got several things at play here to really pay attention to. And it's difficult because it's very it is sort of arcane, you know, in the weeds kind of issues that are affecting that could affect our elections. But the ultimate outcome of having to um, the possibility that the actual vote that voters cast could be disregarded in 2024 is a real possibility that we've got to look out for.
0: So does that mean then, Jennifer McCoy, that the Democrats should have their hair on fire?
1: Uh, Yes. Yes, I think they certainly should. And not just the Democrats. I think any U.S. citizen who's concerned about our democracy and the ability for voters to actually determine outcomes should be concerned um, about not only the the polarization that's dividing us, but these... um, the, the threat to our election machinery that could be coming and you know offices like the secretary of State within individual states who actually run them there are there are a lot of election deniers on the ballot in in states and people may not be aware of even what does a secretary of state do in terms of overseeing elections in their state and so this is this is a problem of lack of information uh perhaps even, you know, lack of curiosity of voters um, to investigate. So it's it's critical for any voter to become informed, take the responsibility for themselves to become informed and decide uh, what's at stake for themselves and what they want to do about it.
0: But you're in the state of Georgia, and today, a couple of prominent Republican senators that the Senator Scott in charge of the, the Republican Senate election campaign and um, Senator Tom Cotton uh, are there campaigning for Herschel Walker, who is just a, a kind of walking political disaster by any reasonable measure, but he's neck and neck in the polls. And I, for the life of me, don't understand how that could be the case. And is it that the kind of Christian vote... Using Christian in quotes, vote is sort of all about power, not about piety. I mean, he's up against a genuine Christian, isn't he, with Warnock?
1: Um, I think that this is a consequence of our extreme political polarization, in that people are looking at the ultra, you know the outcome of the the relative balance of power between the two political parties. And when each side is viewing the other as an actual existential threat to their way of life or to the nation, then they will vote to keep their side in power or to put their side in power. Herschel Walker is just, you know, like a pawn in that people are no longer necessarily voting for the individual, but
0: they may be voting
1: the criteria that... They need to keep their own team in power, or put their team in power, because of the policies that they will carry out, and that the voters believe will that they will defend, uh, that are of interest to them. They may be willing to vote for an individual that just you know may not have the personal characteristics that they approve of, but that will make their team the winning team. So yes, it's transactional in that sense. Of we've got to. Keep our team in power or get back in power
0: so that would explain i guess why the the race in a senate race in ohio is close with jd vance who trump in a backhanded way at a campaign rally said he's kissing my ass i mean not exactly an endorsement and then you've got ron johnson in wisconsin who's just appallingly ignorant candidate He's neck and neck as well. So it's just tribal. That's yeah, what we're I think the
1: problem, Yeah, the problem is that it, it used to be that politics were more local. And so people were concerned about politicians that they could get to know, that they thought were credible, that they liked, you know, that they believed in. And issues were more local as well. But now our politics have become nationalized. Everything, campaigns, campaign money, um Uh, media have all become nationalized and so that everything is put in terms of a national message and a national outcome. And I think that's why people, again, are not necessarily assessing the individual strengths of a candidate, but the numbers to get their team in power.
0: But in the Washington Post article that you're quoted in, what will happen to America, if Trump wins again, experts help us game it out. You're basically saying that because of this pernicious polarization, we'll either have electoral autocracy where votes are cast, but don't necessarily confer power or outright democratic collapse. And of course, this is extremely worrisome and we're in uncharted territory. If Trump comes back, I think it would severely deepen the crisis that we face. And then you Add to that what you also mentioned, Jennifer, about the Supreme Court on this independent state legislature theory that they're taking up. I mean, it feels like a one-two punch, Jennifer.
1: Uh, Yes, uh, for sure. And I think in the article I was referring to the research that we did that showed the outcomes of very perniciously polarized countries, um, that many of them, did end up in either an electoral autocracy, that is, meaning you have elections, but they can be manipulated very easily, or a complete democratic collapse. And the reason why it was difficult to to predict the United States is because we haven't had an advanced, wealthy democracy like the United States, where, where our peer countries, we usually think of as Japan, Europe, Australia, New Zealand. So we haven't had within that set any country that has had the level of sustained pernicious polarization that we've been seeing the last years in the United States. And so when we look to other countries and what's happened, we can see a you know a, a very uh, dangerous outcome. And that's what we're trying to alert people to, to be aware of the direction that this could be going, looking at. Uh, international and historic patterns.
0: Well, just in the last uh, couple of minutes, uh, Jennifer McCoy, given that something like 80% of Republicans believe that Trump won the last election and that Biden is an imposter or an illegitimate president, this is how Trump's rejection of the results of the elections have metastasized into this bedrock belief system in the GOP. Is that a new phenomenon and, and could, you, could you attribute that to new media, social media, the kind of post-truth America we're in where you know, the reality-based community is being sort of swept aside by a kind of idiocracy that people believe what they want to believe and it's all faith-based and facts are inconvenient or you have such things as alternative facts.
1: Yeah, you know, every time we've had technological innovation in the information sphere, going back to the invention of the printing press and the radio, we have had the ability of demagogues to take advantage of that, to spread propaganda and to sway people. So I would date this for the United States, actually, not just social media, but back to cable, TV, um, the Internet, with this proliferation of news sources. And uh, talk radio, where and the the, the evolution of TV and, and radio to become opinion based for profit, because as profit making, you know, corporations, they have found that opinion based news is uh, more of a selling item than uh, the the old style of news, and especially outrage politics and clickbait. Articles are uh, more profit generating, and this is a problem. I think we've got to look at our whole model of information. So social media exacerbates this trend that has been happening for the last 30 years um, with this this change in our information uh, technology.
0: So just in closing, we started out talking about how the, the country is polarized, perniciously polarized, as you say, and that even though Trump didn't create it, he certainly exploited it and exacerbated it. So could you add Rupert Murdoch to Trump in terms of the pantheon of villains?
1: Well, uh, yes, to the extent that you know he owns Fox News and allows individual hosts to do what they want to do. And so if we look you know particularly at people like uh, Tucker Carlson, Sean Hannity, uh, who are willing to spread the disinformation, um, you know, for whatever of their own reasons, then that certainly contributes to our problem. And again, and I just want to say that, you know, when asking wh- how people make the decision of who they want to vote for, I think what we're seeing is that people are voting, again, not for a particular candidate. They they may hold their nose and vote for a candidate that does not espouse their, their values uh, at all, but they're voting against the other side whom they fear. And that fear is uh, encouraged by politicians and political entrepreneurs and their own allies and supporters uh, it to uh, for their own uh, agenda and to, to get in power. It's a very easy way to exploit emotions and fears of
0: individuals well jennifer mccoy i thank you very much for joining us here today
1: thank you so much i enjoyed it
0: likewise and i've been speaking with jennifer mccoy who is a professor of political science at georgia state university and a non-resident scholar at the canadian endowment for international peace she recently was a senior core fellow at the institute of advanced studies in budapest hungary and her areas of expertise include democratic resilience, partisan polarization, crisis prevention and conflict resolution, democracy promotion, and Latin American politics. And she's the author most recently of Polarizing Polities, A Global Threat to Democracy. And she has a recent study at the Canadian Endowment for International Peace, What Happens When Democracies Become Perniciously Polarized. We're going to take a brief station break back with an analysis of last night's lively debate between J.D. Vance and Congressman Tim Ryan, in which Tim Ryan said, Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters, and this is Background Briefing, available 24-7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is Robert Alexander, Professor of Political Science and the Founding Director of the Institute for Civics and Public Policy at Ohio Northern University. He has published four books, the most recent of which is Representation and the Electoral College, published by Oxford University Press. And he's a frequent op-ed contributor, having written articles for USA Today, CNN, Real Clear Politics, and The Hill, among others. Welcome to Background Briefing, Robert Alexander.
3: Thanks for having me back, Ian.
0: Well, thanks for joining us, uh, Robert. And you saw the debate, uh, the one and only Senate debate in Ohio, which is a critical race, obviously, who controls the Senate after the November elections. And J.D. Vance, who's essentially a, a protege of the Silicon Valley billionaire Peter Thiel, who's been... Funding his race debated congressman Tim Ryan, and I have to say it was pretty lively, was it not
3: Lively is one way to put it uh for sure uh, yes it there was a lot of red meat thrown about um by both Ryan and by Vance uh It got very testy throughout the debate uh there were a lot of there was a lot of cursing that was going on uh throughout the debate. Some of that brought on by Vance and uh, his uh, his support of Donald Trump. Um, so some of the best lines of the night uh, came certainly from uh, an event that Trump had here in Ohio uh, that Tim Ryan used against Vance. I'm sure we'll chat about that. But uh, yeah, it was um, it was not boring. If so, if somebody's bored by politics, this was not something that they would have been bored by.
0: So specifically, what you're referring to is that. Tim Ryan said of J.D. Vance, Ohio needs an ass kicker, not an ass kisser. And of course, that's what that backhanded compliment from Trump was at the rally with the J.D. Vance standing beside him, where he effectively humiliated him by saying, he said some terrible things about me in the past, but now he's kissing my ass. So that didn't make him look too good. But how does he look? Did he look on stage? Did he look as if he was you know, right. Peter Thiel's and Donald Trump's puppet, or did he is somehow assert himself and have some sort of identity?
3: Well, it's it's hard to run away from a, a comment where you say that Donald Trump could be America's Hitler and then actively seek out his endorsement just a few short years later. And so uh, what Ryan was pointing out was that J.D. Vance, like many in the Republican Party, have done an about face uh, with Donald Trump. And uh, and, you know, and, and Ryan even used like metaphors of being a, a former athlete whom he was uh, and said things like, you know, I've, I've been in the factories and I've 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 been on the football field and I've never seen anybody humiliate themselves like that. Um, and uh, and so, the, you know, those are being kind of cut as advertisements right now. I think that ultimately what Ryan was trying to get at was authenticity that I want to be your authentic, candidate. And one thing in Ohio, and this is something that was very attractive about J.D. Vance, I think early on among many Republicans is he's got a great rags to riches story. Uh, but, but something that's really important, I think in Ohio politics is the, the import of, of authenticity And populism has been something that has always had a very strong strain uh in those that we have selected, you know, Barack Obama ran as a populist in the state. Uh, Donald Trump, uh, he's got his own um, nationalist pop- populism. So uh, there's a long history of populist sentiment. And I think that Ryan was trying to put cracks in, you know, the, the J.D. Vance kind of rags to riches story to say, look, this guy uh, went from rags to riches, but then he, he left Ohio behind. He doesn't have Ohio's workers at his back. He's going to put China first. I mean, in many ways, Ryan sounded kind of like Donald Trump, um, kind of loving the same kinds of arguments. Um, so if Ryan's going to have a an opportunity to be successful in this race, when and the polls would suggest that he is in a year when he really shouldn't be, uh, I think that suggests that Ryan's probably as good a candidate as Democrats could have asked for, and that J.D. Vance is probably about as bad of a candidate as Republicans could put up. At this stage.
0: So, did uh, Ryan ever point out that basically J.D. Vance and Blake Masters in, a, in Arizona are being funded by a Silicon Valley billionaire, Peter Thiel, who's try, literally trying to buy two Senate seats and a couple of House seats?
3: He did. He, he literally uh, pointed directly to Peter Thiel and, and said that, the, you know, he's getting his money from Silicon Valley. He's not getting his money from Ohio. He says, look, I've got to scrounge for my cash. <laughs> he said, I'm fighting with with workers for to, to fund my campaign. He's you know, he went after. And by the way, not only did did he point out that uh, J.D. Vance is being funded from outside of Ohio, he also, Tim Ryan, Took great pains to say that I'm not going to be the puppet of the Democratic Party either. Every single time that um, Vance tried to connect him to Nancy Pelosi, tried to connect him to um, Joe Biden, he, he's Tim Ryan said, "No, I, I don't agree with Joe Biden. In fact, I don't think he should run in 2024. I don't agree with Kamala Harris that the border is secure. I mean, he was saying the kinds of things that, um, you know, like I said, you, you'd almost expect out of a Donald Trump, uh, that, that really strong populist um, framework that nobody's going to control me. I'm going to be my own person. And and that actually does play well in, in a state like Ohio.
0: Well, why is it, though, that the race is so close? I mean, obviously, Trump won Ohio pretty handily, did he not? So most of the pundits are saying that it, that it shouldn't be this close. And the fact that Congressman Tim Ryan is punching above his weight. Do you
3: agree with that? Well, I, I do. I think that uh, it, by any other metric, you would have expected that Ohio would be solidly leaning Republican. Here we are in a in a midterm year. Joe Biden is not a very popular president. Uh, Donald Trump was surprising in twenty sixteen that he beat Hillary Clinton in a state that Barack Obama carried twice, but. Trump won by eight points in 2016. And so they thought that Joe Biden would be a better candidate for Ohio voters. turns out Donald Trump won the state again by eight points. So by all expectations, you would think that a Republican should be able to lock Ohio down in in 2022 during this midterm uh, election year. But again, what I'm pointing out is that Ryan has been kind of running some of his one of his first campaign commercials. It was almost indistinguishable. From a Donald Trump ad, it was all about China bringing jobs back home, um, you know, securing the border. Uh, So Ryan is is really trying to hit that kind of very strong populist framework and 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 even nationalist. Um, And at the same time, he's also pointing out that you know these guys, i.e., Republicans, J.D. Vance. And he really did tie J.D. Vance to the Marjorie Taylor Greens of the world, the insurrectionists of January 6th. And and he kind of said J.D.'s running around with that crowd and that's not a good crowd and Ohio deserves better. And so that's why I think that uh, that uh, Tim Ryan is actually polling pretty well. And again, Vance is somebody who criticized uh, Donald Trump roundly um, for several years. And uh, and it was a, a heck of a dogfight in the Republican primary. Um, to, to see who was going to be the heir apparent um, for Rob Portman, our current Republican senator, who is really not like Donald Trump himself. And so J.D. Vance, I think, is is trying to be a little chameleon-like to kind of get this seat. And um, it, it comes back to that word being authentic. And, uh, you know, Ryan looks a little disheveled, kind of like Sherrod Brown, our other Democratic senator in the state, and is, is probably playing off that uh, a bit um, uh, for, for a reason. Um, whereas, uh, JD Vance seems much more polished and, uh, we're a little suspicious of, of that polished politician.
0: Hmm. So what is the magic of Sherrod Brown? Why is he getting elected in a red state or a state that trends
3: red? Well, Sherrod, Sherrod has had a name for, for quite a while uh he did not do as well in his re-election bid as he did uh, previously so that you know is kind of flashing some warning signs for democrats even um back then and so there's a big question on whether or not he will be successful in his re-election bid but you know he he, he speaks a very um strong narrative of workers first ohio workers first and uh and you know, this is a state again that really—it's you know—the industrial Midwest. We expect uh, our our politicians to look out for our workers. And and you know, Ohio has seen some success um, in the past year with uh, some new industry that has has popped up. Um, so that's another one that's kind of interesting to kind of disentangle who's responsible for that. Is that Joe Biden? Is that Mike DeWine, our Republican governor, who has not fully embraced Donald Trump? So. You know, there's a there's a there's a strain of Republicans in the state that are a little suspicious of the, the Donald Trumps of the world. Um, those that are uh, perhaps a little bit too um, nativistic. Um, so Sherrod Brown, he really does uh, kind of hit that populist um, uh, uh, landing mark uh, pretty well and consistently over the years. He has a brand that Ohio voters know.
0: So one of the little rhetorical flourishes of Tim Ryan at the debate in Ohio with J.D. Vance for this key Senate seat was Ryan said, who says that the election was stolen? J.D. Vance does. Who runs around with Ron DeSantis, the governor of Florida, who wants to ban books? You're running around with South Carolina's Lindsey Graham, who wants a national abortion ban. You're running around with Marjorie Taylor Greene, who's the absolute absolute looniest politician in America. (laughs) This is a dangerous group, and we do need to confront it. That's why I'm running to represent the exhausted majority, Democrats, Republicans, and
3: independents. Do you think that resonates
0: or does resonate?
3: For Tim Ryan to win, he's going to have to have some Republicans vote for him. For Tim Ryan to win, he's going to have to have independents come out to vote uh, in the first place. And, of course, he's going to have to shore up support among Democrats. So this this line of, you know, we've got a little bit of a fringe going on here and some, some fanatics out there. Listen, I'm just for common sense politics to try and look out for people like you. I think it's a pretty winning message in the state. There's a lot of people that are very frustrated with how toxic politics has become, and that's who Tim Ryan is going after with with that kind of rhetorical flourish. Um, you know, th- this frustrated uh, group of people out there that, you know, think that we can probably do a little bit better. That you can't just take your ball and go home when you disagree with others. The fact that January 6th uh, did disrupt the peaceful transition of power for the first time in American history. That's not the kind of thing that most people are proud of. So um, Tim Ryan is trying to win those voters over. And I I will guarantee you, Ian, that there will be a a number of Mike DeWine voters who also vote for Tim Ryan. That is, we see split ticket voting very infrequently in American politics today. It used to be a, a big thing where you'd vote for Democrat for one level, Republican for another. You rarely see it today. It's it's almost like a unicorn, right? And uh, I think we will see a good number of them in the state of Ohio, uh, where you're going to have Republicans pulling the lever for Mike DeWine, but also Republicans pulling the lever for Tim Ryan. And that's who he's going after with, with that kind of um, messaging. So
0: just in the last couple of minutes, then, when the discussion turned to abortion, which is what the Democrats are hoping is going to be an important issue following the Supreme Court's ruling banning abortion. How did that do, and how did the to-and-fro over the war in Ukraine, another big issue, I'm just trying to get a sense of how those two mm-hmm. issues play in this at least example of, a, of what's happening in this year's races, mm-hmm. a little over three weeks away from the election.
3: Well, you can see that um, the, the war in Ukraine is such a difficult one because most people don't, most politicians don't really know how to answer the, I mean, the, one of the questions that was brought up was what happens if Putin goes nuclear? Well, <laughs> that's not something anybody really wants to confront and neither candidate really had a good answer for that. I think one of the interesting things there is that, you know, J.D. Vance had already laid out in a in a, um, an interview He's like, why do we care about Ukraine? Why does that matter to us? And I think that that's something that, again, he kind of stepped his, his his put his foot in his mouth on on something like that. Um, whereas Ryan has been able to exploit it a little bit, but I think the issue of abortion is really the the key issue that will be able to move Democrats uh, out to the polls. You know, again, midterm years, the the parties, the president's party that's in power has a hard time kind of getting energized. We are pretty sure that uh, the issue of abortion will energize certainly Democrats, especially young Democrats young women uh, and uh, and a lot of those independent uh, and leaning Republicans that maybe think that uh you know uh, outlawing roe versus Wade is a is a bridge too far uh, we've actually got a public opinion poll out in the field right now and um you know, the early results that are coming in, abortion is a really important issue to a lot of Ohioans. And and among those, it's an important issue. Uh, they do not agree that the Supreme Court should have, um, have overturned Roe versus Wade. So that's something that I think Ryan and other Democrats across the country uh, see as perhaps a, an opportunity for them to um, be a little bit more competitive than, than they might have otherwise been. Uh, had that decision not been made in Dobbs uh, at the end of the summer.
0: Robert Alexander, I thank you very much for joining us here today.
3: It's a real pleasure, Ian.
0: And again, I've been speaking with Robert Alexander, who's a professor of political science and the founding director of the Institute for Civics and Public Policy at Ohio Northern University. He's published four books, the most recent of which is Representation and the Electoral College, published by Oxford University Press. And he's a frequent op-ed contributor, having written articles for USA Today, CNN, Real Clear Politics, and The Hill, among others. We're going to be station back and back-examining the pressure Putin is putting on the dictator Belarus to enter the war against Ukraine.
2: There's room at the top, they are telling you still But first you must learn how to smile as you kill If you want to be like the folks on the hill working class hero is something to be
0: Welcome back. I'm Ian Masters and this is Background Briefing, available 24/7 at backgroundbriefing.org. And joining us now is David Marples, the distinguished university professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, where he teaches Russian and East European history and is a research fellow with the Contemporary Ukraine Program. He's also an honorary president of the Belarusian Academy of Arts and Sciences in Canada. And is the author of 17 books, the latest of which include Stalin, His Life and Works, The War in Ukraine's Donbass, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. And he has an article at Engelsberg Ideas, Belarus, the state built by the Second World War. Welcome to Background Briefing, David Marples. Thank you. So thanks for joining us, David. And in a virtual address by video to the G7 leaders on Tuesday... President Vladimir Zelensky of Ukraine said that, quote, Russia is trying to directly draw Belarus into this war, playing a provocation that we, the Ukrainians, are allegedly preparing an attack on this country. And he called on the G7 to have international observers be placed on the Ukraine-Belarusian border to monitor the security situation. So, We know that Putin is desperate and he's incredibly angry as a result of the attack on his signature bridge between Russia and Crimea on his birthday. So he must be putting incredible pressure on Lukashenko, right, to join in the war.
4: Yeah. I mean, this pressure has existed for some time, but the two have had seven recent summit meetings and the last one was in St. Petersburg, lasted about an hour or so. And I think at that one, he uh, asked Lukashenko for some more direct help. I mean, Belarus has been helping in a number of ways already. Uh, It's allowed Russian troops on its territory. It's allowed missiles to be fired from its territory into Ukraine. And it's also, it was the launch pad for the initial war on February 24th of this year um, when Russian troops Uh, Had an exercise with Belarusian troops and then following the end of the exercise, they invaded Ukraine. So Mm -hmm. you could say Belarus has already been involved in in considerable way in this war, but they haven't sent their own troops uh, into into Ukraine. And this really, I don't think, to be honest, would make a a tremendous difference, even if they did, because Belarus probably has about um, 8000 or so Combat ready troops that it could send over the border into Ukraine. That's that's about the limit. The rest would need further training, they'd have to call up reservists and things like that. So I don't think it would make a huge difference if it happened, but it would psychologically a big move be a big move with the Belarusian population, which has always been told that they're not going to get involved in this war.
0: So this is a population that rose up a- in massive protests because of the theft of the last election, uh, but they were brutally put down, are they likely to rise up again?
4: Well, if Belarusian troops actively took part in the war on the Russian side uh, by order of the government, yes, I think it would cause considerable uh, consternation and and likely some protests as well. It's um, not entirely as if belarus is not involved in that i believe nine belarusian troops have died fighting on the russian side already Mm -hmm. and 11 have died fighting on the ukrainian side so there are some troops already from belarus in this war but they're not part of the official army um and if the army was sent in then yeah i think 90 percent of the people according to the last opinion poll are opposed to Belarusian troops taking part in the war on Ukraine.
0: But isn't uh, the dictator Lukashenko in a way preparing the Belarusian people for an intervention in the war? Because isn't he now claiming that somehow that Poland wants to attack him or is preparing to attack him? What's he saying there?
4: Yeah, he's blamed both NATO and Poland and and believes or says he believes that an attack is imminent from the West. He's also issued some very anti-Ukrainian statements in the past couple of days, suggesting that Ukrainians are infringing on the border and causing provocations, um, which is extremely unlikely. I mean, Ukraine has got quite enough on its hands with fighting Russians without intruding into Belarus. There's no logic to this whatsoever. But Lukashenko has come up with this constantly with this idea of a threat from the West. He blamed the West on the protests against uh, his taking the presidency again after the elections, when it was clearly evident that he'd not won those elections. And he's also blamed NATO for an alleged assassination attempt on himself. Uh, Two people were put in, in prison for that, one arrested in Moscow. And... There have been a number of things like that where Lukashenko has just looked around for someone to blame for his own problems and invariably come down on the side of the West. But ironically, at the same time, his uh, foreign minister, Uladzimir Zemir has put out feelers to the European Union to see if they might reopen the dialogue because Belarus now feels increasingly isolated and it only has Russia basically to talk to. Um, Other than, I think, Lukashenko was in Tajikistan recently, and he also went to the uh, unrecognized Republic of Abkhazia, a breakaway region of Georgia. But by and large, he's got nowhere to go. He's got nobody who really recognizes him as president outside uh, about four different countries, including Russia, who are prepared to stand by him. And in contrast, the opposition leader, Svetlana Svetlana, Sikhanovskaya is recognized as the legitimate president by most of Europe and also has been to the United States and the United Nations in recent weeks to, to give speeches. So I think Lukashenko feels embattled, he's isolated and he's becoming very weak because Russia now is more or less dictating policy for him. The only thing he's managed to do is stay in power. Um, and he's, he's quite good at that. One has to give him some credit. But nevertheless, I think he's running out of options.
0: But is that to That's, say that, you know, he has kept Belarus out of this war for obvious reasons? I guess he knows that there'll be a backlash. But has it reached the point, if he's weak, as you just said, uh, David Marbles, does that mean that Putin will prevail and persuade him to join in the war?
4: Well, I think if he if he asked for it and gave some kind of ultimatum that, you know, Russia would... Think again about the 1.5 billion dollar loan he's promised to Belarus to get it, get it out of its financial problems uh, or make some other threat that Russian troops would permanently occupy Belarus. I mean, they are sending more troops into Belarus now for training exercises. Um, if that if Lukashenko was adamant at refusing all the requests from Moscow, then I think um there might be some retribution, but he's not. He's sort of kept things open uh, and the latest statements about um, Ukrainian provocations, I think our mentors assigned to Moscow, that Lukashenko is still on their side and he's watching their back. He's watching their back from Belarus and Belarus remains a firm ally of Russia. But this, you can almost feel there's some kind of concern in his security council at these lack of options and at cutting off all relations with, with the Europeans, which was more or less a lifeline for the Belarusian economy um, just over two years ago, before the elections, when something like 40% of the trade that Belarus did was with the European Union. So to simply terminate that had a big impact on Belarus. Ports have been closed off to Belarusian exports, particularly potash exports, that used to go through Lithuania that's all closed off to him now so he can only go uh, through Russia to export his goods as well and Russia has also always maintained some kind of hard deal over oil and gas prices to to Belarus well I shouldn't say always initially they had fairly low prices but then they put them up to market prices around 2008 2009 and there's been disputes over these prices ever since and Russia is prepared to, um, to sort of send oil and gas to Belarus without, without a tax. They've decided now to waive the tax. That could easily be reinstated if Lukashenko doesn't play ball with Putin. So you think in every respect, really, there are only 9.2 million people there. Um, they're not really in a position to bargain with a, with a great power like Russia.
0: Well, it's clear, though, that uh, Ukraine's President Zelensky is worried Because he told the G7 meeting that Russia's trying to directly draw Belarus into this war. And he wants to put international observers on the border with Ukraine and Belarus to monitor the security situation. So is that likely to happen? I mean, this is not obviously something that the Ukraine wants.
4: No, I mean, Zelensky was uh, happy, of course, because the initial uh, invasion from the north completely failed. And then Russia started to move for um, the Donbass region and try and consolidate the two breakaway regimes there. And since then, Russia's focused on the east and the south and not the northern region. But Zelensky is obviously a bit worried because if there was another front, it would make it very difficult for Ukraine to divert its forces away from the east, where they'd be making great progress, and back to the north. They simply don't want that. But another interesting thing about Zelensky is he's not really cooperated with the Belarusian opposition either. Uh, He and Sikhanovskaya, for example, have not held meetings and he's not really tried to open a dialogue with the Belarusian opposition, which is now mostly outside Belarus anyway. He's focused on what Lukashenko is doing. So, you know, I would suggest that the, the threat from the north is perhaps not as great as it seems, but psychologically it would make a difference. And Ukraine would still be then obliged to think about moving troops to another front at a time when it can't really afford to do that. It has to focus on the east. And I think it's been the same, actually, for Russia with uh, throughout this war. It's been focusing on Russian troops, but ethnic minority Russians or Russians from Siberia or Russians from different republics of the Caucasus as well. Chechens have played a large role so far, thanks to the alliance with Ramzan Kadyrov. Russia is is desperately short of troops. It's got nothing to back up Um, the troops that have already been used. It's obviously got to train uh, another 300,000 or whatever, possibly as many as a million, which would be double than the number it's already used in this war. So any help from Belarus will be welcome. Uh, But at the same time, I think Belarus cannot afford to get involved in the war, and Lukashenko will resist as long as he possibly can.
0: So let's talk a little about your article at Anglesburg Ideas, Belarus, Mm. the state built by the Second World War. And you have obviously spent time there and seen all these many memorials, a lot of which started under Brezhnev, but it's created the country's identity. Explain that further, if you will.
4: Yeah, I mean, Lukashenko deliberately used the war, which is still called the Great Patriotic War in Belarus, meaning the war from 1941 to 45, because from 39 to 41, the Soviet Union uh, had, an, had a pact with Nazi Germany and was not at war, and divided up Poland, in fact. and he has used the war as a basis to form national identity. And that's not too difficult because Belarus lost an awful lot of people in World War II. Lukashenko has created new myths. He's increased the number of uh, reported losses in the war from the territories of contemporary Belarus from 1.8 million to 3 million. And he's ignored the plight of the Jews who died in the Holocaust in Belarus, who would have numbered about 600,000. In fact, Jews are not mentioned uh, on the major memorials such as the death camp at uh which is in the eastern, in the region just east of the city of Minsk. So he's created this myth and, and to some extent, I think it worked. Many cities and towns already had some war memorials. He's built new ones and he's built historic sites across the country. uh, Or added to existing ones. And so Belarus uh, has sort of traditional heroes like partisans. um, Who played a prominent role in 1943. uh, Early part of 1944 before Belarus was liberated. But it's a long, long way back in the past. I mean, the war ended almost 80 years ago and there are very few people alive who can even recall what happened in the war they were only small children at the time so it's something that needs a bit of pushing by the state the opposition has not been uh, slow in responding in fact during the protests there were many uh, references to the war and comparisons of german occupation with the imprisonment of the opposition figures and the torture that was that was handed out to them, so the opposition also recognised this, the value of this, and and used the war as well. Um, I don't know how far it's got. Lukashenko has started a new comp- campaign now uh, to recognise a Belarus a Belarusian genocide or genocide of the Belarusian people, which, to my mind, um, undermines the memory of the Holocaust there and promotes a new myth that the Germans primarily targeted the Belarusian population. And certainly Belarusians were regarded as, in, as inferior people by the Nazis, but they were not targeted for extermination directly in the same way that Jews were. So it, it's based on lies, quite frankly, and it's been associated with the opposition today, that these oppositionists today are the same kind of people who collaborated with the Nazis during the Second World War. It's complicated, but you know, this is really where Lukashenko has, has gone to now, to try but, and make some kind of new path for himself.
0: Sure, but that's exactly what Putin is doing in Ukraine, isn't it? He's saying that the Ukrainians are Nazis, and that's, you know, entirely yeah, that- reviving the memories of World War Two or the Great Patriotic War for the Russian people and giving the Russian soldiers the excuse to murder civilians because they're Nazis.
4: Yeah, Put- Putin has done that and he's using, uh, for example, the Azov Battalion as an example because they they had uniforms with sort of quasi-Nazi insignia on them. They, they do the arm signal, um, they've broken up gypsy camps, they've carried out all kinds of misdeeds in the past and they are frankly a blot on on ukrainians democratic aspirations um but they're not in power and they haven't been in power um ever they've never represented more than about two percent of the parliament no president has really given them given them much attention either or much support um there has been support for wartime heroes such as Bandera and Shukhevich, who fought against the Nats, uh, fought against the Soviets. And at the start of the war formed an alliance with the Nazis when they first invaded Ukraine. This is really the foundation stone, I think, of what of what the Russians have been saying. Putin's actually gone further than that. And he's, um, he's blamed Poland for the start of the Second World War. I mean, this is <laughs> really... Uh, complete fabrication and he regards the the Russians as the liberators of Europe from the Nazis so that European democracy today owes its origins to the Soviet army which as far as Putin's concerned is the Russian army and um, And it's almost as if the Europeans weren't fighting in the Second World War or the Americans weren't fighting in the Second World War um, only the Russians are are given credit for that so You could say that in all three states, there are some kind of myths Uh, in Ukraine, I would say it's a divided one because two and a half million Ukrainians fought in the Red Army and probably about 200,000 fought in the Ukrainian insurgent army against the Soviets at the end of the war. So you've got kind of mixed historical past there and mixed historical memories in different parts of Ukraine.
0: Well, David Marples, thanks for filling us in on how Lukashenko and Putin are using and abusing history.
4: Yeah, you're always welcome, Ian. Nice to chat.
0: And again, I've been speaking with David Marples, who is the Distinguished University Professor in the Department of History and Classics at the University of Alberta, where he teaches Russian and East European history and is a research fellow with the Contemporary Ukraine Program. He's also an honorary president of the Belarusian Academy of Arts and sciences in Canada, and the author of 17 books, the latest of which is Stalin, His Life and Works, The War in Ukraine's Donbass, and Understanding Ukraine and Belarus. And he has an article at Engelsberg Ideas, Belarus, the state built by the Second World War. This has been Background Briefing. I'm Ian Masters, and I'd like to thank producer Graham Fitzgibbon. And to help us sustain this program into the future and assure it remains free to all, please take a moment to support us and i'll be back again tomorrow with another background briefing at backgroundbriefing.org bye for now
2: took the kids to the and disappeared by